The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Hey, my name is Paul, one of the pastors here at Heritage, and we, we're really glad you're here today. Uh, just very um, honored and blessed that we can gather as the body of Christ, and we can gather together to exalt the name of Jesus and to worship together. I want to welcome you, those of you that are here in the sanctuary. We got folks out in the overflow. I want to welcome you as well. And I know each week we have people that tune in online. I want to welcome those men and women who are tuning in online as well. Way back in November, on the 8th of November, we started a series. We called it In the Beginning. And we decided we were going to study through the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis up to Abraham in chapter 12. So we have had 20 sermons in that series so far. We've taken a couple pit stops along the way. I'm I'm going to be giving sermon number 21 out of 22. And then next week, Pastor Mitch is going to wrap up our, our series on Genesis. He's going to give us the sermon number 22 as we finish up chapter 11. And then we're going to have a special week on June 6th. We're going to have an opportunity where we as a church kind of look at where we are and where we're going. I'm really excited about that. It's kind of a, 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 to give you a little bit of a blueprint about the work that we've been doing behind the scenes as a staff and as elders and kind of begin to open up and, and let, let the men and women of Heritage kind of just really get a sense for, for where we really sense the Lord is leading us. And then beginning uh, on June 13th, we're going to do an eight-week series in the, uh, in the epistle of 1 John. I think we have a graphic for it. We're calling it Walk in Light, Be Loved. The, uh, the, the, the epistle of 1 John is an incredible uh, bit of biblical literature. It, there, there are the basics of the Christian uh, life are, are given in this book. There's like uh, the, the, the premise of, of, of sound doctrine is talked about in this book. There's this call to obedient living and to have this fervent devotion to God. I think it's a timely letter, and I'm excited for us to have a chance to study that through the summer. And then as we head into the fall, we're going to do a sermon series on discipleship. And then, I think I might have mentioned this to you in the past, but we, beginning on September 12th, we're going to be studying the Gospel of Mark. We've been working really hard on that. Excited to share with you uh, the Gospel of Mark over this next year. But today, we are going to be wrapping up, uh, or today and next week, wrapping up our series in, in, in Genesis. Today, we're going to look at the story of the Tower of Babel. Now, I know, I know we're all, even people who aren't Bible people or church people are, are familiar with the story of the Tower of Babel. In fact, as I was driving into work this morning, I heard a, a radio advertisement for Babel, the conversational language software. It's a, it's a word that has permeated our culture. We all understand what happened at Babel. The question we're going to ask today is this. Not just, the, not, not just the highlights or the events of the story. It's contained in, in the first nine verses of chapter 11 of Genesis. But what we want to ask is the bigger question. Okay, so if God inspired Moses to write down this story, to record this historical event. If God inspired Moses to write these words, if God is the ultimate author, the divine author, he had an intended purpose for why he inspired this biblical text. And so the question we're going to ask today is, what was God trying to convey? What was the intent of God, the divine author, in giving us these nine verses, of giving us a glimpse into this historical event? And here's what I think it is. This is what I think the entire sermon boils down to this. God, in his grace, will undo godless plans. I think this is the entire sermon in a bottle. God, in his grace, will undo godless plans. As we prayed over seniors today, that was the prayer I had for seniors. As they look at their future, as they begin to put together plans, my prayer is that God, in his grace, would undo the godless plans in the lives of these students. Because ultimately... The plans that matter are the plans of God and the will of God in our lives. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray that as we open up this text, as we read this well-known story, 
God, I just ask that you would reveal to us the thing you are trying to reveal to us, God. As we examine our lives over the course of the next 35 minutes, God, would you reveal in our lives, God, if there are plans that we are making that are not the plans you would have us to make. God, we ask that in your grace today you would bring conviction where there needs to be conviction. You would bring clarity where there needs to bring clarity, God, that you would undo what needs to be undone so that we can walk in obedience with you. God, would you bring confession where there needs to be confession and repentance and restoration. God, have your way with us. God, we love you. We invite you to meet us in this place in Jesus' name. Amen. When I first graduated from college 24 years ago or whatever it was, uh, I, I, when I realized the NFL wasn't going to call, I took a job teaching and coaching in a small high school in Idaho, in, in the central part of Idaho called McCall, Donnelly High School. My wife and I got married. She moved with me. She was the head basketball coach, the assistant volleyball coach, the assistant track coach. I was the head football coach, the assistant wrestling coach, the assistant track coach, the head strength coach. I was a phi-ed teacher with a whistle and short shorts, the whole thing. We, we did the whole thing. Totally were into it. We were this young, and, and we had plans. And when, I, and, and when I was in high school and in college, when I was in high school, I, I was so desperate to make a name for myself in a small town in Montana, so desperate that, that I was going to outrun kind of the nefarious reputation my family had in this little town. And I, I put all my eggs in the basket of athletics. And I got this opportunity to go play small college football and run small college track. And, and, and all my, my passion and my desire was poured into sports and athletics. And, and, and college was just an aside. I just wanted to do, and I was convinced I was going to be an NFL player or I was going to play after college. And then when that didn't happen and I became a teacher, all of those same desires and passions and hunger to be somebody, to be something, to be significant, to be important, to be lauded, to be appreciated, to be celebrated, all of that was then funneled into my job as a teacher and a coach. And, and I made the decision as a 23-year-old college graduate that I was going to become the greatest coach. And I was going to take this small program, a high school of 400 kids, and I was going to make a, a dynasty. And, and we were going to win state championships. And I was going to be a featured speaker at coaching conferences. That was the passion. Two years into my gig, I pick up a morning newspaper. It was a weekly newspaper in our little town. And the headline at the top of the newspaper said that Paul Stevens loses his job at McCall Donnelly High School because of declining student enrollment. My principal didn't have, a, have the courage to tell me to my face, but I lost my job. You know, last guy hired, first guy fired, didn't have the money to keep me on staff. And so overnight, this, 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 this ambition, this vision, this hunger for what I was going to be and what I was going to do was taken from me. My plans were undone. Looking back on it now, as painful and as disrupting and as hard as it was in that moment, looking back on it now, I can see that God undid all of my lofty plans because God in his grace will undo our godless plans. My guess is that most of you in this room have a story to tell. My guess is that most of you in this room have experienced God graciously undoing your lofty plans on one level or another at some point in your life. If it hasn't happened yet, just hold on, seniors. It'll happen. Perhaps God undid a relationship in your life that was devastating at the time, that left you with a broken heart. But as you look back on it now, you recognize that that relationship was godless. And it was God's grace that he undid that relationship. Perhaps as you look back at your life, you can see a career that God undid. A career that was causing you to careen away from him. And it was in his grace that he took the career away. Perhaps God has stripped away your sense of self-sufficiency. Perhaps he has dismantled a worldview that made you the savior. 
And God, in his grace, has revealed to you that you are not your Savior. We make horrible saviors. You see, God, in his grace, will undo our godless plans. Open up your Bible to Genesis chapter 11. I want us to look at this scene in the Tower of Babel of the way in which God undid the plans of the tower builders. As you're turning there, let me just remind you briefly of where we have been up to this point. Creation, Genesis 1, God speaks creation into existence. Adam and Eve are in perfect relationship with God. They're dwelling in the Garden of Eden. They choose to sin. They rebel against God. Death enters the scene. And as God is speaking his curse over Adam and Eve, you you remember what he says in Genesis 3.15? Is he speaking a curse over the serpent? He tells the serpent that Eve is going to have a seed, a child, an offspring that will one day crush the head of the serpent. And then God turns his attention to Adam and Eve. He he, he speaks curses over their life that they're going to die. And then after receiving the curse that they're going to die, the very first thing Adam does at the end of Genesis chapter 3 is that he names his wife Eve life. This is incredible. They just received a death sentence, except except Adam names his wife giver of life or life. Why would he have done that? Because because he heard what God said to the serpent in Genesis 3.15 that the the offspring of Eve would crush the head of the serpent, preserving life for all. And so in this first act of of trust or or belief or faith, he names his wife life. But the the shocking effects of sin spread, right? We get into Genesis chapter 4. The first two children ever born on planet Earth, one murders the other. Cain kills Abel. We see the genealogy or the the generations of Abel, and we see that it ultimately manifests in a gentleman's name, Lamech, at the end of Genesis chapter 4, who boasts of killing a child for daring to touch him. We see the depravity of humankind just getting worse and worse. We go to a, a, a genealogy in Genesis chapter 5 that ends with Noah. We get into the flood account in Genesis chapter 6, 7, 8. And, and in that account, we see that the depravity of humankind was so perverse, so pervasive, so total, that God, the only thing he could do was, was to bring judgment through waters upon the face of the earth. There was a, re, a, 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 de, a decreation that took place through the flood. And then as Adam, or as Noah rather, and his family step off the ark, there's this sense of recreation. There's hope that maybe we're going to get it different. This, this Noah is a new Adam in this new created world. But then in Genesis chapter 9, we see drunken Noah and his son Ham and a horrible, grievous sin. And we're reminded that sin is still a very big problem on planet Earth. Genesis chapter 10, Pastor Sam Peck was here last week from Philippi Church. He taught us, we call this chapter the table of nations. We see how all the nations of the world come from Japheth, from Shem, and from Ham. And then today we pick up in chapter 11, the Tower of Babel. Let's read. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Verse 5. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold... They are one people, they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse the language, confuse their language, so that they may not 
understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. A lot packed into nine verses. These nine verses are are astounding. There's a structure here uh, of these nine verses that that is just, it's it's astounding. And I know in the past, when we went through the flood narrative, we looked at the chiastic structure of the flood narrative. I want to show you the structure of this text again. Again, I wish I could take credit for this. This is another scholar by the name of Kent Hughes. This is his work. But he helped me to see this this week as I was studying the text, or last week. And we can see that the the, the chiastic structure is, is, there's two mirror images and there's a, there's a middle piece, and the top is mirrored perfectly and opposite in the bottom, and it all hinges on the middle. So here we see an A through F, then G is the center of the text, and then F through A. I'm not trying to be all smart on you, but I want you to see this, because this helps us understand the meticulous and beautiful way in which God crafted this text. Now, now this is Moses writing about a historical event. He's not writing a poem to write a poem. But he's writing about a historical event, the Tower of Babel, but he does so in such a meticulous way, and God inspires this. And when we look at this structure, we see what the people in Babel did in the first A through F. We see what God did in in G, and then we see what God then undid in verses F through A down below. We see a perfect mirror with this hinge in the middle. The reason I share that with you is because when we look at a chiasic structure, we know that what is in the very center, so G, the line G, that is the, the centerpiece of the text. It also helps us understand what is the thing God is trying to say to us in this passage. Remember, this is the question we asked when we started. What is, God, what is the main idea here? Well, verse 5 tells us what the main idea here is. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. God was awakened, and he responded to the disobedience of humankind by coming down to earth. That is a big deal. If you look at the structure of my sermon, the structure of my sermon outline is, is I try to reflect the, the structure of the text. My sermon outline, there's going to be three points we're going to walk through today. Man's arrogant ambition, that reflects verses 1 through 4. Verse 5 is reflected by God's intervention. God's gracious intervention. And then down below we have God's humbling correction of man in verses 6 through 9. Ken Hughes, uh, the gentleman who, who helped me understand that structure, here's what he had to say about it. He says, The careful structure of this text is matched by painstaking use of words and word plays through words that sound the same, through rhyme, through alliteration, which of course we don't get to see because we don't speak or read Hebrew. But in the original Hebrew, this is an incredible bit of, of work. And the center of the chiasm focuses us on what is being said here. I initially thought about naming this sermon God, semicolon, don't make me come down there. Because that's, that's really what's happening. It's like, it's like Father looking down and saying, oh, don't make me come down there. I guess i got to come down there now and do it. I remember when I was a kid, my dad, logger, terrifying. My dad never abused me. He was a good father. But he was just stacked and, and just terrifying. And I can remember when I was a kid, we, we kind of would share rooms and we'd make noise and my dad would get furious when we wouldn't go to sleep and he would, you know, we'd be in our room talking and chatting and, and laughing and giggling and my dad would burst in and he would say two things. He would say, um, I don't want to hear another peep out of you. That's a, he said it a thousand times. I don't want to hear another peep out of you. And then he would say, don't make me come back in here. Okay, so if, like every single time he ever said that, I, I listened and I was obedient except once. One time, my dad burst in, my cousin was spending the night, and he says, he says, I don't want to hear another peep out of you. Don't make me come back in here. And I was trying to impress my cousin, and my dad left, and I went, 
Peep. Little did I know my dad was standing outside the door. The door flies open. My dad comes in and terrifies me. You know, didn't abuse me, but just terrified me. And I learned to not make my dad come down there. So the, the people of, of, of Babel are about to learn an important lesson. As you look at the story of Babel, as we've seen in other sections of Genesis, there's often kind of a mirroring of what happened in the garden, right? So there's a, there's a mirroring here as well. In both Babel and in the Garden of Eden, uh, we, we see a couple of things that are parallel. Number one, they're both roughly in the same region. The valley of Shinar or the plain of Shinar is between the Tigris and the Euphrates River, which is roughly where the Garden of Eden is, interestingly enough. At, Edom, uh, at Eden, rather, Adam and Eve attempted to grasp power apart from God when they chose to partake of the fruit of the forbidden tree. At Babel, the tower builders are attaining to, uh, attempting to exceed God's limits that he placed upon them. They're, they're, they're trying to become like God. So we see these parallels. In both Eden and Babel, when God sees the, the dis, disobedience of humankind, he responds using plural language. In Genesis 3.22, God says, when he's looking at Adam and Eve, God says, the man has become like one of us. Verse 7 in our text today, God looks at the, the, the people in Babel and he says, come, let us go down there. And in both cases... As God's looking at the sinfulness of humankind, God is concerned about what's going to happen to humanity. And his actions are motivated by love and they're carried out in grace. In both Eden and Babel, the heart of, man's de- the heart of man desires to make much of themselves. The heart of man desires to elevate itself, to make much of self. But as we know, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, according to the Westminster Catechism. And so man is doing the exact opposite of what God designed them to do. And as we gather here today in a gymnasium in Medford, Oregon, I don't think the heart of humankind has changed much since those tower builders in Babel so many years ago. I wonder, as we were to look at our own individual lives and as we look collectively at the world around us, I wonder what are the ways in which today we see humankind making much of themselves? Can you imagine some of the ways we see this happening? We live in a world where there's a title that's literally called influencer. Someone makes much of themselves on social media. They're an influencer. People want to be like them. We live in a celebrity culture, a tabloid culture, a voyeuristic culture, a world of social media fakeness where it's all about presenting yourself in a way that's dishonest, but it's designed to make much of self. You see, God and his grace will undo godless plans. If you were here last week, you would have heard Pastor Sam as he came and he taught through Genesis chapter 10, the table of nations. We see how all the nations of the world come from Shem, Japheth, and Ham. And three times in Genesis chapter 10, it says that they dispersed and that they spoke their own languages. That's the previous chapter. And then we get here to chapter 11 and it says that they're all gathered together and they all speak one language. What's the deal? Did Moses get it wrong? It's like, no, we've got to understand, this is Hebrew literature. It's not, it's not, it doesn't come from the mind of someone who grows up in Western culture. We are obsessed with chronology in the way in which we read and understand things. That's not how Hebrew writers wrote. They wrote more thematically than chronologically. And in fact, the way in which the, the text is placed, this, this story of, of humankind refusing to disperse and speaking one language, the fact that it comes after chapter 10 is very intentional because what God is saying to those of us as readers is like, we know immediately upon reading this that it's futile. It's like we already know that language was confused and people dispersed. We read that in chapter 10. So we get to chapter 11 and it says, oh, but these people decided against God's will that they were going to stay together and speak one language. We know immediately what's futile plans. It's an intentional placing of this text because we know upon beginning to read it, 
that this is going to fail. This attempt of humankind to make much of self is going to fail. We already know. So look with me again, if you would, at verses 1 through 4. I'm going to read it in its entirety, and then I want to make an observation. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words, and as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. Here's the first thing I would encourage you to write down. As we look at verses 1 through 4, we see man's arrogant ambition. As we look through verses 1 through 4, we see man's arrogant ambition. As the floodwaters receded back in Genesis chapter 9, what did God say to Noah and his sons? Chapter 9, verse 1, God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. What's their response? They migrated from the east. They found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. God says, multiply, fill, spread, be dispersed. They say, nope. We're going to settle and we're going to do something that we want to do apart from you, God. The decision of the post-flood people to settle stands in direct contrast with God's command to fill the earth. This amazing gift of solidarity that they had, one language, it, it, it comes with so much potential like God even says in verse 6 that the limits to what they could do, it was unlimited what they could do, but rather than promote godly oneness of the faith because of this unity they have, they instead are unified in their rebellion against God, and they collectively move away from God. And notice what direction they travel in verse 2. They migrated east, it says. In the book of Genesis, throughout the book of Genesis, eastward traveling is always reflective of moving away from God, walking in opposition to God, moving away from the goodness of God, the good gifts of God to make a way for themselves. Adam and Eve, when they left the Garden of Eden, they went east. Uh, Lot, when, him and, when he left uh, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, he went east. Uh, when Jacob uh, left, he went east. And when we see throughout the, the book of Genesis, eastward traveling is always reflective of, of an open rebellion against God, a universal rebellion. And as we look here at the, the, the people of Babel, one scholar says here in the Tower story, the people's eastern migration depicts universal rebellion. They have moved outside of the place of blessing. And their collective resolve is to move away from God. They said to one another, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they took brick for stone and had bitumen for, for mortar. I'm not a, uh, an ancient construction uh, archaeologist, but I've read some stuff. And what I understand is the first audience to, to the book of Genesis would have been the Israelites the, in exile, heading to the promised land after being delivered from Egypt, right? And they, they, they knew that they had Palestinian stone, which was far superior than, than clay that had been burnt, than bricks that had been burnt and, and, and created. And so the first audience, from what I understand, is they would have read this or they would have heard this story. They would have thought to themselves, well, that's foolish, you're going to build a ziggurat that, that, that reaches heaven made of these, these bricks, these, these, these bricks that break apart. They would have known that the building practice itself was foolish. And the idea here is that not only is the building practice foolish, but the reason that they are building is, is beyond foolish. It just speaks, it's a satirical way to speak to the foolishness of the people who are building the Tower of Babel. The arrogant heart motivation of them is ultimately revealed in verse 4. Why are they doing all of this? Why are they disobeying God? Why are they trying to make, because they want to make a name for themselves. 
the end of verse 4, they, they want to do this to make a name for themselves. Let us make a name for ourselves, it says. And this heart motivation, it reveals two reasons, right? They, they want to become uh, like God, and they want to displace God. By building a tower to heaven, they don't need God. So they can become like God. They can displace God. And then when they get up to heaven, guess what? They can, they can, they can call the shots. And they can, they can basically become gods. To build a tower that bridges heaven and earth is an attempt to ascend to heaven and be like a god. There's a scholar of the Torah, and I think what he says, his name is Nahum Sarna, and I think what he says is really interesting. This, this is kind of gives us a, an ancient world perspective of what was happening here at Babel. Listen. Rooted in earth, with its head lost in the clouds... This tower was taken to be the meeting point of heaven and earth, and as such, the natural arena of divine activity. On its heights were the gods were imagined to have their abode, constituting an obvious channel of communication between the celestial and the terrestrial spheres. The sacred mountain was looked upon as the center of the universe, the navel of the earth. This was the biggest thing mankind had ever done. It was the seven wonders of the world combined. This was the crown jewel, the, the greatest achievement in humanity. When I was a kid, we had a picture Bible that sat on our living room uh, table, our, 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 our coffee table in our living room, and it had this picture on it. And I can remember as a kid looking at that picture Bible. Did any of you guys ever see this like in one of those old-fashioned Bibles, those family Bibles? I would look at that picture, and I would imagine the people of Babel building that, and I would try to, can you build a, a tower to heaven? I would just, I would think about this, and, and it, was, it was a wondrous thing for me to imagine. And as these people were building this, they're thinking, man, if God can be displaced, if, they can, if God can be a God of their own making, um, then they don't need a God. But as much as their stated desire was to make a name for themselves, there's probably a hidden desire here as well. Which one of us in this room doesn't want our life to count? Which one of us in this room hasn't thought at one point or another in our life, man, when I die, when I breathe my last breath, I want to know my life means something. I want to know that I've lived my life for the right things, that I've left an impact, that I've left a legacy. We all think of that. And as I think about these people building this tower, as much as their stated desire was to make a name for themselves, the unspoken motivation behind the building of this tower was the fear of anonymity. If they didn't build a tower, they would just die and history would forget them and no one would care about them. A number of years ago, my wife and I were in Montana, uh, hanging out with my sister and my brother-in-law, and we were on these mountains called the Pioneer Mountains, kind of in southwestern Montana. And we were kind of exploring, hiking, backpacking. We rented a little cabin that we had to hike to. And, and we ended up stumbling onto this old ghost town. I have no idea what the name of the ghost town was. I'm sure it's got a name. But there was these old cabins that existed in this little ghost town. It was pretty cool. And we're walking around, and we get to this one cabin. Uh, it's probably an old mining settlement. And we get to this one cabin where you walk inside, and, and, and there's actually lath and plaster in this mining house. And there's old remnants of wallpaper. And I'm thinking, what prospector had wallpaper? It's crazy to me. But then I kind of started to play this little imagination in my mind. I'm thinking, okay, let's imagine what was going on in this little town in 1850, right? Someone found gold. People from all over the country settle in western Montana. They're, they're pining, uh, panning for gold, trying to make a way for themselves. And some lucky guy finds a big old nugget. And he's suddenly the richest in town. And he decides, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show my wealth. And he builds his cabin. He puts lath and plaster. He goes to town to Butte or Bozeman or wherever. And he gets wallpaper. And he throws wallpaper up on this little cabin in this little town in the middle of nowhere, Montana. And he was the biggest deal in that little town. He was Jones. And everyone else was trying to keep up with the Joneses. That was him. And he got to beat his chest. He got to walk around town. He got to puff himself up. He was a big deal. 
And then as I walk through this little uh, town, I, w- I walk into this little graveyard. There's some piles of stones and some wooden headstones. Most of them had fallen over. You couldn't even hardly read the names on them anymore. And I don't think anyone had visited that, that, that cemetery for years and years and years. And it struck me as I'm walking over the bones of dead people, I'm like, there is not a human being alive on planet Earth that remembers a single person in this graveyard. Maybe they got some, you know, Ancestor.com thing and they know the name of the person, but not a single memory exists. They have been completely erased from history. They're dust. And I think of all the sweat, blood, and tears were spent in that wallpaper. How many people in that town schemed and planned how they could keep up with the Joneses? How many godless plans were formulated in that little mining town to keep up with those people with wallpaper? They're all dead, it's all dust, none of it matters. And I wonder how many times you and I have schemed and planned. And we've looked at the wallpaper house of our own imagination. And we've wondered to ourselves, what do I got to do to get there? I wonder how many schemes and plans we have put together that are just godless. And I'm reminded that God in his grace, he will undo our godless plans. The irony here is that they're trying to make a name for themselves, a name of fame. The reality is the name that they made for themselves is an embarrassing name. The exact opposite of what they hope to happen happen. We read Babel now and we know it's a joke. They confuse their language. They didn't finish the city. The thing that they, the great thing they schemed to accomplish, they never accomplished it. And they're kind of history's joke. I think about just human history. All of the kingdoms that have risen and fallen over the years. All of the dictators and czars and presidents and prime ministers and kings that thought themselves divine, that thought themselves important, that ended as dust. I wonder what complexion the arrogant ambition of man looks like as we take a self-assessment today. As we look at our own lives. What might the arrogant ambitions in your own heart be today? What might be the ways in which you are tempted to displace God and become like God in your own life? After I lost my job uh, teaching and coaching, I took a job in a neighboring school district teaching third and fourth grade. I was a horrible third and grade. I was a horrible teacher. I had lots of fun. Kids didn't learn a single thing. And uh, uh, it was a fun year. And I coached junior high, eight-man football that year, kind of humbling. Uh, and, uh, but, you know, God used that displacement of my, of my job as a teacher and coach to, to, to waken up my heart for ministry. Fast forward a couple of years, and I'm a youth pastor in central Wisconsin, uh, loving our lives. Uh, we were, Becky and I are having kids. I'm a youth pastor. And, and I wish I could say it was a really clean thing. I wish I could just wrap a bow on that story and say, see, God undid my godless plans, and then I went into ministry. End of story. It all ended well like a Hallmark movie. Here's the sad truth if I'm honest with you. Uh, I had so many worldly lusts, right? I had worldly lusts, and people said, oh, you must love playing football. You must have loved the games. Like, no, I didn't really like the game, but I liked seeing my name in the newspaper. And I liked walking into a cafeteria after a great football game and having everyone think I was pretty cool. I loved that. When I coached, oh, you must have loved the kids. You must have loved just pouring into those kids. Yeah, it was okay, but what I really wanted was to make a name for myself because I wanted to know what it felt like to walk into a coaching conference as the big dog on campus. That's what I wanted. And then one day I go into ministry, and I just transferred all those worldly lusts, and I attached the name of Jesus to them. Now, did God use it? Of course he did, because he's God, and he uses all of our stupid ambitions. But, but I just, I, I sanctified my worldly hunger, and, and, and I used ministry, and I never told anybody this, and I wasn't even aware that I was doing it at the time, if I'm honest, but I used the name of Jesus to become a big deal. It was so awesome to stand on a stage and have people think you were special. 
And I could spiritualize it. I could say God was glorified in it. And maybe he was in a backwards way, but it was all about me, if I'm honest. And then when we planted our church in Milwaukee, it was amazing. God did awesome things in Milwaukee. You've heard me tell stories. I'll tell more stories. But I remember what the, the decision for us to go to that little that town and plant that church, there was this old movie theater that the church had purchased. It was a, the church that we planted with. It was an old movie theater that seated a thousand people. And I remember Becky and I walking through that church building in, in the fall of 2011, and I walk into this building. It was filled with asbestos and mold, and there was no power, but the door opened in the back of the stage, and it shined light in the theater, and I stood on the edge of the stage, and I saw a thousand seats. And in my heart, I said, mm. if I can stand on the stage, and a thousand people are eating out of my hand, I'll be a pretty big deal. Isn't that gross? It's just gross. But it's true. And then over the next eight years, nine years after we planted that church, God, in his grace, systematically introduced suffering into my life and loss into my life and pain into my life, a lot of it self-induced, that has begun to do the process of breaking me of that. Still there. I'm sure there'll be a day in my life I look back on the man who stands in front of you today and I'll be embarrassed by the, the worldly lusts, the godless plans that still lurk in my heart. But I'm so thankful that God in his grace undoes our godless plans. Look with me at verse 5. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. This marks the center of the structure of the text. This is the emphasis of the passage. And here's the thing I want you to write down. God's gracious intervention. As we look at the Tower of Babel, we see God's gracious intervention. It was in his grace that he intervened upon the godless affairs of man. In one sentence, the scene shifts from the arrogant ambitions of humankind upon the planet to, to heaven, to, to God being slightly amused, heartbroken over the, the, the godlessness of the plans they were making. And, and he comes down. And notice the language. It says, the Lord came down. Compare that to the lofty statement made by the people building the tower. We're building a tower to heaven. We're such big deals. Look at this thing we're doing. And then God has to come down to look at what they've done. One scholar says, Yahweh must draw near to the Tower of Babel, not because he's nearsighted, but because he dwells at such tremendous height, and their work is just so very tiny. I imagine a, a father who is a, a contractor, a developer, an architect who builds 100-story towers in urban, urban centers around the world. I can imagine him working all day long at building these towers that, that scratch the clouds. And he comes home and his four-year-old son is on the carpet in the living room and he's got some mismatched Legos and he's put four or five blocks on top of one another and he set them on the carpet. He says, look, Dad, I'm just like you. I'm building a tower. And the dad gets down and pats his head on the sun and says, oh, isn't that cute? The best efforts of man. These Babel tower builders, they got like four Lego blocks stacked up on top of one another compared to God. It's nothing. God is so utterly unimpressed with the efforts of man. And in his grace, he'll undo godless plans. Look with me at verses 6 through 9. Let me read it in its entirety. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. And so the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth. And they left off building the city. Therefore, the name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. 
And here is the mirror image of verses 1 through 4 in this structure that we pointed out earlier. First, we saw how the activity of humankind was, was, was all put towards building this tower at Babel, verses 1 through 4. And then in the center of the chiasm, we saw that God decided to come down. And now in verses 6 through 9, we see God systematically reversing everything that humankind had done apart from him. And here's the third thing I would encourage you to write down, the final point of today's sermon. God's humbling correction of man. When we look at the Tower of Babel, ultimately we see God's humbling correction of man. Now remember the word humble is not to think less of yourselves, it's to think of yourself less. God says, you're not God. You're not to be the one worshipped and celebrated and exalted. I am. And so in his grace, he humbles them and corrects them. And we see him systematically undoing everything that they have done. The language captures it pretty well. Verse 1, we read that the whole earth had one language. Verse 9, the Lord confused the language of the whole earth. He undoes what they've done. Verse 2, people are finding, they they find a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Verse 8, the Lord disperses them from there over all the face of the earth. He undoes what they're doing. Verse 3, People are saying, come, let us make bricks. Verse 7, God says, come, let us go down and confuse their language. Bit by bit, God undoes all the godless plans that these people have done. His actions were motivated by love. He's not a meanie in the sky. He's a loving father who knows what's best for his children. One pastor puts it this way. God was troubled by what would happen to humanity if the human family was left unchecked. They would build up a delusion of self-sufficiency through their false religion, their corporate security, their political uniformity. They would throw off God and attempt to rule the universe. And in their delusion, they would never turn their faces to God. Their Babylonian hearts would become impenetrable and irredeemable. So God, in his grace, he intervened so that they wouldn't be fooled. They would no longer think themselves God. They would recognize their need for a God. I remember six years ago doing ministry in Milwaukee, and as I've shared with you in the past, the city of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, is a racially segregated city, racially scarred. And we know as we watch the evening news that this is part of the the mainstream dialogue every single night, right? Racial discord, racial tensions. And I remember watching the city of Milwaukee, and our church was a multi-ethnic church, and uh, there was all these tensions. And I remember about six years ago, I was sitting down with a collection of people that were kind of represented the nations. There was an African-American family there, and a, an Hispanic family there, and a, uh, some Hmong immigrants that were there, and some, some, some Caucasian folks that were there. And we were talking about ministry and about the unity that, that Jesus can bring. And I can remember reading verse 6 in our text, when God is looking at humankind, and he says, Behold, they are one people. And they all have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing they propose to do will now be impossible for them. And for like 15 seconds, I thought, well, isn't that the goal? For 15 seconds, I viewed the world through secular eyes. Isn't that the goal? Isn't unity the goal? Isn't this what we want? Then I was reminded of what another Genesis scholar named Derek Kidner, he writes this. Our text makes it clear that unity and peace are not the ultimate goals. Better division than collective apostasy. If in the unity, humankind turns their backs on God and tries to become their own God, that's not the goal. And I I became convinced of this. You've heard me say it before. I became convinced of this. As the world talks about racial reconciliation, I'm convinced that, that reconciliation between human beings can only happen, authentic reconciliation, once we've been reconciled back to God through Jesus Christ. When you and I put our sin to death, 
and we're born again into the family of God and his spirit fills us up and we're, and we're born again in Christ, we're made alive in Christ, reconciled back to God, then and only then can we work towards meaningful uh, reconciliation with one another. It's loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength first that we may learn to love our neighbor as ourself. And I, can, I begin convinced that all the governmental programs and all the political solutions and all the community activism, all that stuff, it's going to fall short if it doesn't rest on the work of Christ. As we look at this text, it's certainly a text about humankind going astray, having their plans thwarted by God, but it's one in many stories of, of kind of a larger message that we see here in Genesis. As we go back to the, to the garden and we kind of work our way through up to now, what we've seen up to this point in, in the book of Genesis is that God has these plans to bless humankind, and then he provides humankind with what he deems is good his good gifts, his good blessings, whether it's the garden or whether it's a vineyard or whether it's wisdom and knowledge. He blesses humankind with what is good. He provides them with what is good. But then we see again and again and again in Genesis and in our text today, human failure to trust God and to enjoy in the good that he has provided. And then humankind again and again turns their back on God. They enjoy or they fail to enjoy what he has given and to trust him. And they grasp for good in their own eyes. And then God undoes those plans. Again and again, we see in our text that God in his grace will undo godless plans. And so that's our passage. Three simple points. Man's arrogant ambition, God's gracious intervention, God's humbling correction of man. Ambition leads to intervention, which leads to correction. And if we're honest, and if you're honest with me, all of us have a Babel heart at one point or another. Like those tower builders, we so easily can give in to our own arrogant ambitions, can't we? We can get to building our own towers apart from God, towers of career, towers of family, towers of reputation, towers of wealth, towers of comfort, towers of knowledge, towers of accumulation, whatever it may be. And then God in his grace undoes our godless plans, and it hurts. And I don't want to minimize that, that pain. I don't. I don't want to skip over. Some of you have had painful, painful seasons of your life where God has systematically undone the godless plans that you've made. And maybe even when you were making those plans, you had no idea they were godless. Maybe you even thought they were plans that God endorsed, but you've learned through time and through perspective that that, that was not God's will. Those were not God's plans. And he's undone them in his grace in your life. That's painful. And I think about the past 15 months. I think about the pain of COVID and what it has inflicted on our economy, on our culture, on our churches. And I'm imagining there's probably folks in this room that could talk of how many plants have been undone by COVID. And there's been times, if I'm honest with you, there's, I mean, I I know God is sovereign and ultimately I I, I resort to that truth, but there's times when I'm just watching the madness of our world, social disruption, uh, economic devastation, uh, uh, cultural corruption. I'm just watching all this, and I'm just like, I know God's not asleep at the wheel. I know he's sovereign, but there's times I'm thinking, come on, really? How much more needs to get undone? And I don't want to minimize the pain that maybe you've gone through in COVID, but could it be that God has even used COVID to undo plans in our life that needed to be undone? We've got to remember that this city is not our final city. This is not our final city. We, we, are, we are in Babel. We are, as Christians, we are sojourners here. We are exiles here. Peter talks about this in 1 Peter. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. And as we look at this story of Babel, that's not where the story ends. 
The hopelessness of Babel was not God's final word. If you, if you fast forward to the end of the Old Testament, there's a, there's a minor prophet named Zephaniah who spoke of a day when God would reverse Babel. Zephaniah 3 verse 9. God is speaking through the prophet. He says, For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. This prophecy that God speaks through Zephaniah is God's answer to the effects of Babel, and then Jesus came. This Messiah, this misunderstood Messiah came, and through the death and resurrection of Jesus, he brought a great reversal of Babel. God undid everything that happened at Babel. Do you remember what happened at Pentecost? Acts chapter 2, verses 4 through 6. Listen to this. It's when the Spirit of God is poured out upon his church after the ascension of Christ. All the believers are gathered together in Jerusalem, and it says in verse 4, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Verse 5, now they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, and at the sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Isn't that amazing? You see, when the Spirit of the living God was poured out upon his church at Pentecost, we see an, a great undoing of what we see happen back at Babel. God bringing nations back together. And then what, what Brent read this morning, that in Revelation 7, we see one day that the, the, the every tribe, tongue, language, and people group is going to be gathered around the throne of Christ with one voice and one accord, with one language, exalting and glorifying and worshiping and upholding the one who needs to be held up. One day we're all going to see that. And one day, for, for those of us that are gathered here at this place, we're, we're assured that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be caught up in this new reality. And a day is coming when sin will be forever destroyed and perfect unity will be restored among the nations. A day is coming when a perfect city, a holy city, the new Jerusalem, will come out of heaven. This, this new city is the opposite of Babel. This is the city of God. This is the new Jerusalem. And in this city, the nations will unite as God intended. And so today as we gather in this place with our eyes fixed on God's eternal plan, when you and I understand that God's eternal plans are preeminent, then we are, we're thankful that in his grace he undoes our godless plans. And so he, here's the implication. Here's the thing we need to remember today. We must leave our godless plans. We must give up our God-defying ways. We must put away our proud dreams. We must annihilate our our arrogant ambitions, we must, put, we must put sin to death. We must never set our minds on making a name for ourselves, but giving every breath, every ounce, giving everything we have to make his name great. And I'm reminded whose name we bear. John 1.12, to all who did receive him, Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You see, God in his grace will undo our godless plans. Would you pray with me? Father, I'm so thankful that you allow us to gather in this place week in and week out that we can sit under the authority of your word. And God, we ask that the, the human lips to try to convey this word as faulty and as flawed as they are, as faulty and flawed as my message is, and, and the way I get in the way, God, that somehow, some way, by the, by the power of your spirit, through the preaching of your word, God, your truth would, would, would fall upon uh, fertile soil on receptive ears, God. Would you, would you soften our hearts, God, as we take an assessment of our life today, as we look at the plans that we have built and concocted, God, if they are godless, would you... God, of humility, would you undo them? God, we, we, we want your name to be made great. 
We want the hope of Christ to, to go forth. We want our lives to be a living testimony to you. God, we want, we want to live as men and women who are worshiping. And so, God, would you do what you got to do in our lives that we might live in such a way? God, we love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.